I will not be intimidated into withdrawing from this process. You've tried hard. You've given it your all. No one can question your effort. But your coordinated and well-funded effort to destroy my good name and destroy my family will not drive me out. What you want to do is destroy this guy's life, hold this seat open, and hope you win in 2020. Okay, so I asked if you drank in high school and you said, I like beer 10 times. <laughs> that leads me to the next question. Did you ever drink too many beers? You mean, was I cool? Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I know that I recommended Succession to you, and it's still a great show. It's still in its terrific second season, Sunday nights on HBO, and I'm still not shilling for it. But I do want to spare a thought for Unbelievable, which happens to have the advantage, unlike Succession, of being released in full eight episodes, every single episode on Netflix, so you can just binge it. It's based on the story of a serial rapist, as reported by ProPublica and The Marshall Project. And feminism is not an angle on the show. It's not a lens. It's the air the whole series breathes. I bring it up because we're going to be talking about Brett Kavanaugh today. And Unbelievable has managed to throw into relief a thought I had during his somewhat traumatic confirmation. And that's that, like no other crime... One's relationship to rape seems to dovetail with one's relationship to truth. What I mean is sexual assault is an event that, like it or not, unlike armed robbery, can be quarreled over. Was Brett Kavanaugh waving his penis around at a party at Yale and even forcing it into faces and hands? Was that assault? Abuse? Immoral? Illegal? Does it matter what the context was or how insulted some people in the room were by it or or how many laughed it off? And what if no one's traumatized by the wagging penis? Is it a crime then? And thus we get into an epistemological project that has a dangerous dark side. And that's the persistence of doubt about the testimony of victims, male and female, because the possibility of someone who wags his dick around at parties To him, the possibility of him being thought an assailant, almost a rapist, is so abhorrent that to get that feeling away, he, and I'm thinking of Brett Kavanaugh himself here, has to demonize the victims and call them opportunists and liars. And no one in this whole mess seems capable of giving just a dry recitation of the facts. What happened between Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford? What happened between Brett Kavanaugh and Debbie Ramirez at Yale. The women in the stories represent themselves as so traumatized that they have a hard time thinking clearly about what happened. And Brett Kavanaugh represents himself as so victimized that he clearly can't talk about what happened. So we end up in a truth twister, and everyone is flooded with terror. Terror of sexual violence for those who identify with the victims. Terror of being found out by people who identify with the sexually aggressive perps. Unbelievable shows a wide range of responses to rape by both men and women. I've never seen anything like it. And it reminds me of an extraordinary observation by one of my mentors in graduate school, the philosopher Elaine Scarry. Elaine said, to have pain is to have certainty. To hear about pain is to have doubt. I'm going to leave it at that and let that sink in, as they say on Twitter. 
My guests today, Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly, took an epistemological vacuum, the one that opened up when Republicans in the Senate refused to vote for further investigation into Brett Kavanaugh before they confirmed him. So we didn't get the investigation then. We were denied that investigation. And that's where Robin and Kate came in. They've given it to us now in their book, The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. I'm so happy they're joining me on the show and what's a busy week for them. Welcome, Robin and Kate, to Trumpcast. Thank you for having us. Sometimes I think there have been two kind of major reciprocal traumas of the past uh, three years. Um, the first was the election in 2016. Um, and the second was Brett Kavanaugh. Now, those are the ones that really like went into my dream life. Other little things along the way didn't sink in so so deeply and horribly and feel like trauma to the country or at least to the women in the country. But that one, I mean, I don't know if you had the same experience, but right after Kavanaugh was confirmed, the people I saw, the women I saw, the friends I saw seemed like kind of hollow eyed and empty and just defeatist. And it really seemed like the world was upside down. We had heard Christine Blasey Ford give more than credible testimony, almost hard to doubt testimony. Like as much as you stretched your mind to disbelieve her, it was very difficult. And then see the Senate and particularly Susan Collins blow past that and everyone else say no investigation and the performance, of course, of Lindsey Graham, the fake outrage. Anyway, was that your experience, Kate and Robin? And is that what inspired you to write the book? I think the inspiration for the book came a little bit later than when the Christine Blasey Ford and then the Deborah Ramirez allegations came out. Mm -hmm. I think it happened when the confirmation vote happened on October 6th after a very abbreviated FBI investigation, the results of which nobody knew other than key members of the Senate and the White House. And we felt like there were so many unanswered questions. And wherever those answers would lead, whether it would lead to additional corroboration of those women's allegations or it would lead to uh, vindication for Justice Kavanaugh mm -hmm. because the allegations weren't right. We felt like we wanted a sense of closure just as human beings and citizens and curious journalists. And yeah. we were pretty certain a lot of other people would like to have the closure and we thought, let's take a look at this. Let's try to investigate this ourselves and see what we might be able to find. In terms of the personal reaction to the proceedings, it was very gut-wrenching, I think, for everybody. And I think a lot of us have experiences or know people who have had experiences with sexual assault, and that's always very difficult to hear. We've heard a lot more about it since the Me Too movement started, so I think there's a lot of emotional reaction and there's a lot of sort of accumulated um, anguish over the stories that we're hearing and that we know of. At the same time, Justice Kavanaugh, then Judge Kavanaugh, being frustrated and angry, left a very searing image for a mm -hmm. lot of us. And on reflection, one interesting thing for Robin and I was the fact that we tried to put ourselves in his shoes a bit and think how we would feel if our son or our spouse were accused of something and believed the accusation was wrong. How painful would that be for mm -hmm. us as well as for him? There is this sort of moral outrage around it. But the reason that I that it seems like Kavanaugh 
this is was an important occasion for journalism is that there's also and maybe this sounds too um, rarefied, but like an epistemological crisis, because you heard Christine Blasey Ford give this perfectly empirical testimony. Not only did she know what she knew, but she really knew what she didn't know. It sounded it was just it was so fleshed out. It felt like a real experience. And then in response, you got I like beer don't I'm falsely accused you're wrecking my life but nothing that made sense of all the material evidence of the calendar of the of the slang in the calendar of the culture at Georgetown prep and so it was I think part of the trauma was just being reminded of all the experiences where you'd been unable to get a straight answer both from this administration in the blur of contacts with, with Russia and all kinds of other things that they were they just kept strong arming us about, obstructing justice about, and in our Me Too experiences. We just never got a hearing to say this is exactly what happened. And journalism, yes, you say we must have been curious. You must have been curious to find out what happened here. And I'm so glad that you jumped into the breach. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I think that you know, everyone we talked to, and we certainly shared this view on some level, felt a sense of things being unfinished. They felt unsettled and unsatisfied, frankly, that these events, which were so highly charged, flew by um, where you had journalists kind of frantically trying to, to kind of find the facts, even as this was unspooling at, at a very fast rate. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of this impetus, the impetus for us to kind of go back at all of this in a more thoughtful, considered way with the benefit of more time and some perspective to really try to understand what happened here, more about who these people were in, in a more three-dimensional way. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, to frankly realize that actually it's because of the moment we're living in where there is this raised consciousness around sexual misconduct. And we are so sort of politically divided as a country that people really, this was kind of like a, a Rorsach test. And then mm-hmm. people just saw what they wanted to see without actually some some real kind of deep investigation and and, and trying to um, kind of get to the truth, quite yeah. frankly. So let's start with the resignation of Justice Kennedy, because we once had an expert on apartheid on this show, Andreas Dutoy, who's still a, an activist in South Africa, because he had written a really interesting thread saying Justice Kennedy's resignation reminded him of a moment before apartheid when a small, seemingly administrative thing happened and it led to autocracy. And he thought this might be the same thing, that there was something in that almost accidental, completely you know, spontaneous and unexpected event of Kennedy's resignation from the Supreme Court that then ended up putting Kavanaugh in place. What did you learn about that resignation? I know there have always been questions about it. Uh, did you think there was anything suspicious about it or at least opportunistic about it? What did you make of that moment? I mean, there was definitely there were a lot of conspiracy theories that, you know, in some way Kennedy had been coaxed to leave and he'd been given some guarantees about who would replace him. You know, we were never able to actually pin that down. But I think there was the sense that we had that he was given some assurances that these particularly these these clerks who had clerked for him 
that at least with with Kavanaugh, that he was a very likely candidate to replace him. And I think that Kennedy had an interest in sort of preserving his legacy um, with some with sort of a known um, commodity and certainly has very kind of fond feelings for Kavanaugh and a close relationship. And so there was some sense that Kennedy had some sense that he was going to be leaving his position in good hands. But there is nothing kind of dispositive that, that bears that out. Okay, that's useful. And so do you think it was true that there were a few front runners and that Kavanaugh was among the front runners or was that was the fix in for Kavanaugh? I mean, I think that he was Don McGahn's choice. Don McGahn was White House counsel at the time. They Mm -hmm. had a history together in the Bush administration and just from, you know, Washington sort of establishment circles. And so I think he was he was somewhat McGahn's man. And I think McGahn certainly championed him. But, you know, basically what was interesting about this court process was that, you know, even though Trump tends to be a president who seems to have all the answers, when it comes to picking judges, he seems to have sort of kind of acknowledge what he doesn't know and Mm -hmm. deferred to sort of contracted out to the Federalist Society, which is the organization that kind of cultivates um, conservative judges. So Mm -hmm. there was a kind of a Federalist Society vetted list of potential candidates. You know, all of them kind of satisfied the basics um, in terms of a conservative agenda. Mm-hmm. Some of them were more problematic than others in terms of kind of confirmation potential. Um, but but what was interesting was at first, um, from what we learned, Kavanaugh was not necessarily considered uh, conservative enough by some people who were part of this process that he hmm. was a little too middle of the road, a little too establishment, a Washington figure, and kind of more of a Roberts than, let's say, an Alito or a, a Gorsuch um, when they were trying to secure um, kind of the right on the court. And I think they also were, frankly, that he that his kind of he had too many too much of a document train. Um, he had had too many papers when he worked for President Bush. And that might be a problem. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, it wasn't like he was a shoe in, but he was certainly a strong, a strong candidate. So let's talk about the proximity to McGahn and also the speculation that Kavanaugh was too center of the road. It seems to me that a McConnell figure only cares about abortion and just in the gross you know, lines of these things, just cartoonish representations of them. And Trump seems to only care about protecting himself, broad executive powers. So on which of those two or what other thing did Kavanaugh seem too centrist? Kavanaugh was always high on the White House list. Mm. Uh, Don McGahn, the White House counsel who had known Kavanaugh for a long time and had worked with him previously, was a fan. And he had instructed his staff to vet Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and some others in advance of Kennedy's retirement. As a matter of fact, they were ready for it roughly a year before it actually happened because Kennedy had signaled that he might be retiring not long after Judge Justice Gorsuch was confirmed. In terms of the centrism, Kavanaugh's jurisprudence was actually a little more pragmatic and less ideological Hmm. on the circuit court in D.C. than some of the more conservative-leaning textualists would have preferred. So one of those examples was his ruling on Obamacare, which was kind of a down-the-middle ruling. It was not as conservative as some would have liked. Let me know how it's possible that Kavanaugh was considered 
too centrist. In my cartoonish idea of this, McConnell and rank-and-file Republicans care only about abortion when it comes to the Supreme Court. And Donald Trump, our president, cares only about someone who will protect him and and assert his broad executive powers, as Bill Barr does. How did Brett Kavanaugh seem to fall afoul of either of those in being too centrist? Or is it a total an- another issue altogether that got him that reputation? So Brett Kavanaugh had very much put together his conservative bona fides along the way. He had worked for a Republican president, George W. Bush. He had worked on the independent counsel team for Kenneth Starr in terms of looking into Whitewater and then later the Monica Lewinsky matter. As a judge on the circuit court in D.C. for 12 years, he had been sort of a pragmatic judge who from time to time would surprise with his opinions One example of it is there was a 2011 case that challenged the legality of Obamacare. And although on the one hand, he dissented from the two to one ruling in Obamacare's favor, he sort of muddied the picture by saying that judges had no jurisdiction to resolve the dispute over the legislation. So that was something that was actually red flagged by White House counsel Don McGahn's team Hmm. as they were doing the vetting of a future potential Justice Kavanaugh. They went through his 300-odd opinions from the circuit court and flag the ones that might be flashpoints in a debate in which he was framed or hoping to be framed as the go-to conservative choice Mm -hmm. or one of them. There was also a somewhat noted uh, abortion case from 2017 that involved an undocumented immigrant in Texas who had crossed the border, was pregnant, and wanted to obtain an abortion. And that was sort of a complex set of issues. But essentially, uh, he argued that this teenager should spend a little bit more time waiting to obtain that abortion, uh, even though she had had a lower court say that she was entitled to one because of matters that related to her being 17 years old and not of majority age and needing to be with a so-called custodian Hmm. before that procedure happened. So that was kind of a mixed result in conservative eyes. On the one hand, it imposed a delay or a restriction on the access to the abortion. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, though, it didn't block it entirely. What I guess I also want to know is how integrated is his thinking about the law with his temperament and character and life? You know way more about him now than probably anyone should. He just doesn't frankly strike me as as a justice, a jurist. He seems like a different kind of guy. And even when I hear Ben Wittes really tried to persuade me that he was he's a conscientious and sort of man of the law, but he seems like a B student and a party hack. He just doesn't have that Scalia RBG presence. And t- can you tell me why I'm wrong about that or maybe why I'm right? That's a good question. I I think it's a little bit of both, actually. I I don't think he was a massive intellect. Uh, You know, he certainly, the people we talked to about him in college and and law school, he was not sort of the the standout student Mm -hmm. who kind of impressed people with his kind of his mind or his, uh, his ideas. He wasn't the person kind of raising his hand and speaking up in class. Mm-hmm. He interestingly wasn't even politically active at all, which may have been strategic at the time. Mm. I mean, he did uh, ultimately join the Federalist Society when he was in law school, but he was kind of an everyman. You know, many people speak to the idea that he didn't make much of an impression, mm. um, which was really kind of interesting to us. And, you know, now in retrospect, it may look like that was by design because, you know, he was uncontroversial somewhat. But, you know, one of these great lines is someone describing 
describing him as kind of ham on white was how mm. they would talk about him. Mm. Mm-hmm. He was more about fitting in than standing out. And I think that was his M.O. And, and it ended up kind of serving him well because he wasn't objectionable. You know, he didn't alienate people. He just didn't sort of take strong positions one way or the other. Um, although he may have felt them, he, he certainly wasn't voicing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, interestingly, George Priest, who was uh, one of his law professors, one of the few um, conservative law professors at Yale Law School, which is um, kind of typically known for having a liberal bent, mm-hmm. um, he recommended him to Judge Kaczynski when Judge Kaczynski was looking for a clerk because George Priest not said he wasn't, wasn't because he was that impressive in torts class, uh, George Priest said to me. But um, because he was kind of nice guy on the basketball court, like mm. basically had had good manners. So it's sort of you get a sense that that was people's sense of him was, yes, he was a jock, a party guy, sort of uh, unobjectionable, e- you know, easy to be around. But at the same time, you know, obviously academically distinguished. So kind of like a covert student where mm-hmm. he was actually putting in the time and effort to to do well enough to get admitted to Yale Law School. That's not something that people can easily do. And certainly there are no... Um, connections we found that would have kind of greased the wheels for him. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a series of impressive clerkships and, you know, jobs in the profession, as well as talking to clerks of his who who said how much how important it was to him that politics did not enter into his decision making and his consideration of cases, which was interesting given kind of how um, kind of partisan people assume him to be given his writing of the Star Report and kind of going after Clinton over the Lewinsky affair. Mm -hmm. It seems like his decision making then was uh, not influenced either by ideology or by intellect. (laughs) I mean, it was basketball (laughs) court stuff. It was that and it was wanting to be on the court. He wanted to be a judge. Yeah. And I I think he, you know, and I do think he is kind of like a letter of the law guy and a pragmatist Hmm. in a way that um, is actually just kind of, you know, just less, uh, less ideological, as you said. In his own words, he's a pro-law judge. Ah, pro-law. That was what he said more than once during the proceedings last year. Unlike the studiously anti-law judges that the world we know all about. (laughs) So at the beginning of the book, you visit his, it's at his Georgetown prep reunion in the very start, the homecoming at Georgetown prep. And there's a really interesting word you use there. The crowd is talking about, some of his old classmates are talking about a letter that surfaced. You may have to remind me of all this. It's something that he wrote about, like the house rules when the, he was with his party buddies. Tell us about that, because you, what you say is not only does it have that party language that Matt Damon satirized so well, the kind of references to heavy beer drinking and all that, but it also has some little kind of annoying rules about how much everyone owes for this summer house or this uh, share, whatever they're getting, and a few other things. And you use the word persnickety. Which, mm-hmm. and, which is not how we think of Kavanaugh, but that's another side of him. So tell me about persnickety. Yeah, I mean, we got this Beach Week letter, so-called oh, yeah. Beach, Beach Week, Week letter, letter. That's at right. the New York Times about a year ago. And we wrote about it in the paper, and then I sort of expanded on it in writing this portion of the prologue. Yes. And essentially what it was was that a letter that Kavanaugh had written in the late winter of 1983 when he was a senior in high school— And he and his friends were preparing for Beach Week. Now, Beach Week for the uninitiated is a week-long retreat that occurs uh, among sort of the more affluent students in the D.C. area. You make it sound a lot like a lot of fun. (laughs) I'm I'm getting to I'm getting to the dark side of Beach Week as well. Okay, (laughs) so. 
it's a week long beach vacation um, in Ocean City, Maryland and Rehoboth. And I'm sure Dewey, I'm sure people go to different places on the Delaware shore. But in this case, I think the focus was on Ocean City and essentially barely chaperoned or even unchaperoned young people get together in these condominiums and drink their faces off and hook (laughs) up and go to the beach and get into all kinds of shenanigans. Kavanaugh and his group of friends went multiple years And much has been written about this for your listeners who are interested by Mark Judge, his classmate, um, who's written several books about his high school experience and Beach Week factors in. But anyway, Brett wrote a letter to help organize Beach Week, and he told the group of friends that they needed to put together $398 as a deposit for the condominium and that they would have to handle this because he was going to be on vacation during the week where it was due. And he provided information about that. But he also talked about how they hoped that girls would come and stay with them and that there was more than enough room for girls, but that they had to sort of limit the access of others because they only had so many beds. Hmm. And they should maybe warn the neighbors that they were obnoxious and prolific pukers was his word, Mm. which later became sort of salient because it came up during the Senate confirmation hearings that he has a weak stomach and was known back in the day for vomiting when he was drinking too much. (laughs) And once again, Mark Judge has written about Kavanaugh with a sort of thinly veiled avatar known as Bart O. Kavanaugh for passing out and puking in someone's car. So to make a very long story short, this letter was resonant for some of the Georgetown Prep alumni who were talking about the New York Times story we had written on it at the Georgetown Prep reunion last October, and they thought it was classic Brett. It was, Hmm. on one hand, his organizational side Hmm. Hmm. and his eye for detail, and on the other, the sort of party side mm-hmm. and the puking, the invitation for girls, etc. <laughs> yes. First of all, I love your kind of emotionless summary of this thing, which is just obviously, you know, that absurd spring break stuff that used to get advertised to us every in the 80s, Fort Lauderdale and whatever. I never um, was lucky enough or unlucky enough to be invited, but it was definitely a phenomenon in the 80s. Um, It's weird because Elena Kagan is roughly the same age as Brett Kavanaugh. I don't remember her her Beach Week stories. Do you? Do you guys? <laughs> this I haven't the... heard anything about that, but is she from the D.C. area originally? <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. I think she's from New York. I think she's from New okay. York. Is there a Beach Week in New York, Robin? <laughs> we don't We do not do Beach Week in, in New York City. You uh-huh. don't, but go out to the Hamptons and pound right. a lot of brewskis? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. We do do that. And so, um, so, and, and that thinking about Elena Kagan in the same breath as Brett Kavanaugh is the kind of thing I feel like we've been doing for three years. It used to, right around the time Stormy Daniels news broke, I just tried this thought experiment of Hillary Clinton is paying off guys in the thunder from down under, um, and, uh, you know, male strippers, Chippendales dancers or whatever. And we've just learned about it and somehow taken that in. It's just, it's just very hard in some way to think that these two genders and people from such contrasting cultures can now all be in Washington together and again and indeed running the country and the court at the same time. I hear that, Robin, in how you summarize Brett Kavanaugh's life. It's it's almost just completely alien. So Catholicism, 
that's something I want to lean on. My colleague Dahlia Lithwick did a really interesting Q&A with Elena Kagan, and she was talking to Justice Kagan about religion on the court. And apparently, Justice Gorsuch, I think, is one of the few, oh, maybe Clarence Thomas? Are, are, there, there are very few Protestants on the court now, that it's, it's mm-hmm. really dominated by these by Catholics and Jews. And religion does inflect decision-making at the level of the court. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it would be it's almost impossible to think of something like abortion without it being in the context of religion. Brett Kavanaugh's story obviously had a lot of religion to it. There were sort of virgin horror paradigms, and they're all in Catholic school together. And, you know, I was kind of surprised to hear Christine Blasey Ford, who's not that much older than I am, talking in that, you know, honestly, that Catholic matrix of, about her inexperience and and Kavanaugh talked about his sexual inexperience. It's just very different from hearing people from other parts of life talk about uh, sexuality. Tell me about his Catholicism. So I think Brett Kavanaugh and his current family, his wife Ashley and his daughters, but also his family of origin, Martha and Ed and him, his parents and he, were very religious and he continues to be. He goes to church every week. He's a lector every five weeks, I believe, at Blessed Sacrament, which Mm -hmm. is a large church Mm -hmm. in Chevy Chase. Um, He's done some charity work for local Catholic charities, and it's a big part of his life. He was an altar boy growing up at this church called Little Flower Mm -hmm. um, just outside of D.C. So I think that tradition is very real for him. Georgetown Prep, which was his high school, is a Jesuit high school, and the Jesuits within the Catholic religion are are sort of the progressives, relatively speaking, and they're, of course, known for their educational tradition. I think there was something of an absence of much sexual education at Georgetown Prep based on the interviews that I've done with people who attended in the late 1970s and early 1980s, which Mm -hmm. is when Kavanaugh was there. I think that there was a real emphasis on religious history and there was a mandatory chapel service every week and there were sometimes services before football games on a Saturday and prayers before every class, prayers before every game. So there was a set of rituals and a set of traditions that sort of ran through the school curriculum along with religion class itself Mm -hmm. that was all part of the backbone. And in some ways, it ended up in a sort of interesting direction, like there was an exorcism course that was taught as part of religion to the freshmen by a priest who specialized in exorcism and would play tapes, apparently, of a possessed young child. That is a memory that sticks out for a lot of people. But so are just debates over religion and the meaning of being Catholic and the idea of forgiveness and all of these things that were had on a regular basis at Georgetown Prep. So I think they had like a pretty vibrant intellectual and spiritual rigor to their program. Yeah. When it comes to sexuality, what I gathered from all these interviews is that there really was a sense of casual misogyny. That was a word that one of the alumni in Kavanaugh's class used, Mm -hmm. a sense that you could sort of dismiss women, make fun of them, talk about them as sexual objects, and that that was kind of an accepted thing. One example of that that we've seen was this Renata thing. Uh, The fact that in the yearbook, all these boys talked about this young woman named Renata, who was a friend of theirs and someone in their social circle 
and apparently kind of an attractive young girl that some of them have probably had crushes on and did take to dances and so on and spend time with kind of his friends. Mm. But they would talk about her as if she was a sexual conquest and kind of talk about their sexual experiences with her, none of which were real based on the reporting that we've done, including statements from her. She was friends with them, went with them to some dances and things, but there was no sex that went on. Hmm. So the idea that you could joke around about your... um, sexual behavior from over the weekend and your drinking behavior and you could speak in this sort of disparaging way but at the same time really care about a young woman you knew those two things sort of coexisted and one more example of that is in the underground newspaper that mark judge ran along with some other classmates though not kavanaugh um There was very misogynistic talk in that paper about Holton Arms, which was the high school that Christine Blasey Ford went to, Mm -hmm. Christine Blasey at the time. And there was talk about all it takes to score with a girl from Holton is a Montgomery County library card, Hmm. among other things. So you can kind of get a flavor of what I'm talking about there. Is it does that actually does that mean because then you seem smart or is it because then you have access to the very erotic stacks or something? I don't I don't get it. Mark? I don't know if it was that well thought through, okay. frankly. I'm not sure where they were going with it. <laughs> okay. I actually tried to reach the woman that was referenced in that column and uh, was not able to. So I wasn't able to ask her. Yeah. I was watching not long ago an old episode of Charlie Rose about, I think, date rape and campus sexuality and um, and Christopher Hitchens was on it. And. I was inclined to sort of shut him out because he was saying the opposite of what I wanted to hear. But what he said stayed with me, and it reminded me of certain things that Kavanaugh said when he was testifying, namely that male sexuality is so unstable and has so much shame associated with it and so much performance anxiety and so much having to prove yourself that Hitchens essentially said that he felt too like a victim of patriarchy. All he was thinking about was would he be able to perform? Would he be able to manage himself sexually, manage his sexual aggression and his sexual fears? Um, and there was surpri- there was a little bit of that, and I promise, I'm not trying to show compassion for Kavanaugh, but there was a time when he was talking and saying, believe me, I didn't have sex when I was in high school, that he almost seemed to be looking back to this very insecure high school kid who just didn't know what he was about. Um, And I almost saw that there was an opportunity for him to say, which might have cleared him, I had no fucking clue what I was doing. I was Mm -hmm. a big drinker and all I I wanted to be able to kiss girls and I couldn't and I was awkward and I was weird. And I thought Chris, I thought Christine wanted this and I was in the habit of kind of trying to kiss people when they didn't want to be kissed. And I am so sorry. And I really expected what would it cost him to say that? But he couldn't. Right. I mean, I think there are two things. I mean, first of all, I do think you're on to something that that certainly our book does flesh out. And that was partly why we revisited these early years. Yeah. Was they do kind of show us a picture of a kid that that you did kind of see testifying and kind of talking on Fox News. This is not a guy who like had the moves and got the girls. Yeah. Um, This is a guy who stayed by the keg and maybe said some kind of disparaging things that sounded kind of blustery, like, I'm going to get that girl. Mm -hmm. But in fact, you know, there wasn't a lot of follow through. And actually, nobody really remembers him having a girlfriend Hmm. in college or in high school, for that matter, um, even though he may have. I mean, it just he was not 
you know, he was clearly someone who maybe was really uncomfortable around women and perhaps resorted to alcohol as a way to feel more socially at ease. I think there's really something to that. And he clearly on national television said I was a virgin through college. Yes, so that's right. Virgin um, through assuming college. that's true. You know, this is not somebody who was um, kind of just not putting notches on his belt. Yeah. At the same time, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who, who have suggested sort of this middle ground where he could have acknowledged some sort of earlier behavior he's not proud of and, and perhaps a- apologize to those he may have hurt along the way in sort of being this sort of ham-handed, bungling adolescent. Yeah. And I think that the consensus, what we really came to is that in, in this in this era of Trump, where his playbook is to fight back and give no ground and, you know, deny, deny that, um, you know, basically uh, Kavanaugh was performing for an audience of one, that mm-hmm. being Trump. Trump, mm-hmm. you know, even though the Senate has an advice and consent role, it was really up to Trump to, you know, he could have pulled his nomination at any time. And, you know, he really needed to kind of satisfy the president. And the president's M.O. is, you know, quite different. And in fact, you know, it really got it was communicated to Kavanaugh that that the president was not pleased with Kavanaugh's uh, a, a performance on Fox because he felt it was too tepid hmm. and sort of didn't have enough fight and indignation in him then. So he certainly made up for it in his final day of testimony. I get that. And he came out swinging. Lindsey Graham came out swinging. And it mm-hmm. looked it definitely was a Trumpite performance, the deny, 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 and attack, and attack, worked. attack. And it worked. But one thing he said that, you know, th- one of the most quotable lines of his whole aria mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. fury and hysteria. One thing he said that I thought Trump wouldn't have liked was his sort of hymns to beer. Mm-hmm. You know, Trump prides himself. He's had an alcoholic brother That's who died. True. Right. Prides yeah. himself on not drinking. And not drinking. And I mean, I guess the I like beer was an effort to make Kavanaugh seem like an everyman, you know, in be- beer in particular. But also Virginia, to be accurate, at least like, you know, we know that he drank a lot. Right. So yes. if he's trying to be someone who actually doesn't technically lie. Yeah. Then saying I had sometimes I had too many beers covers that ground, even though it, you know, our reporting shows it understates it. Right. It, I mean, that was a key yeah. concession. It was very lawyerly and it didn't elaborate on mm. whatever he may have done when he was drinking or how much he drank or how regularly. But it was an acknowledgement. Sometimes I had too many beers. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he's saying it's true that there were times that I was under the influence and perhaps too much so, but he says no more than that. Right. He didn't black out and he didn't. He said not. Right. But then again, you know, that's the whole question of how do you know you didn't black out? If you were were blacked out, you wouldn't remember. But you could tell that that was a hot button because those were some of the most venomous moments of that September 27th hearing that was full of venom. But um, there was an interaction with Sheldon Whitehouse over it. that was Very acidic. Yes. There was an interaction with Rachel Mitchell where he kind of seemed to almost be scoffing, like he thought it was almost a ridiculous question. She was asking things like, did you ever wake up somewhere other than when you laid down and went to sleep? Mm-hmm. Or did you ever wake up in different clothes? Mm-hmm. And he seemed to find the question ridiculous. And Rachel then there, Mitchell was the prosecutor. I'm sorry, yes. right. She was the person who was uh, asking questions on behalf of the Republicans for part of the day mm-hmm. until they took back over. And then there was the infamous exchange with Amy Klobuchar where she asked if he had ever blacked out and he got really angry and said, you know, I like beer. Do you like beer? Have you? And that became sort of um, kind of the apex of the hostility, if you will. 
I'm glad you got to Senator Klobuchar because she has written about her alcoholic father, who I think eventually got sober. Yeah, she talked about that at the hearing that day. She talked about that at the hearing. And, you know, I, it is interesting because, you know, the rule of thumb is that alcoholism is self-diagnosed. But, it, you know, anyone who looked at that, I mean, I think um, just... He looked like an alcoholic. He sounded like an alcoholic. Even the denial sounded like it. If someone's caught drunk driving, even if it just happens to be the one time that they had, you know, four beers instead of their usual two, you usually can infer that something's going wrong. It's like a spot test, right? Do you think it buys us anything? It adds to our understanding to think of him as someone who's a problem drinker. That's a really interesting question, and you make a very good point about how alcoholism is self-diagnosed, and I certainly don't think he considers himself an alcoholic. Not that I have asked that question or heard it asked directly, but based on everything he's said, that does not seem to be his stance. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a purely theoretical uh, conversation here, but my sense is that alcoholism is a progressive disease, mm -hmm. and it gets much worse and worse as the alcoholic goes on. So- while you have what appears to have been binge drinking at a point earlier in Kavanaugh's life, and we write a lot about the presence of alcohol and its impact based on people who knew him back in high school and college in Kavanaugh's life, um, it's not an uncommon thing at that age. A lot of people overdrink at that age or use drugs. And right. I'm not saying that he used drugs, but many people do. And it's a time of experimentation and pushing boundaries. That's nothing new. It's going on today. Some people think it's actually even worse on campuses, at least in college, now than it was in his day. Mm -hmm. So that's all kind of of a piece with American evolution of young people. Yep. Um, and later on, he seems to be a, an extremely hardworking and accomplished person who has positions of power in the White House, on the Independent Counsel's team. He does stints as a partner at a major law firm. And then, of course, he becomes a circuit court judge for 12 years, and then a Supreme Court justice. Kavanaugh, as an adult, has been a highly functional, hardworking family man who has a lot of things he does with his time, in addition to being a judge, coaching basketball, participating in professional events, having a social life with friends. He's run marathons. He does mentoring. He does all of these things. Although he still does drink, and he talked about that, and we know that from our reporting, it would seem hmm. that whatever his drinking was back in the day, it's very different and certainly much more manageable than it was then now. Yeah. I mean, if he had acknowledged that he had a problem with drinking and stopped drinking or at least had a moment in his life like George W. Bush or yes. or, uh, you know, maybe Obama when he put down something, he might be able to say, Right. That happened. This high school thing happened before I kind of grew up and understood the world a little better and changed my ways. Mm -hmm. And that might have made sense. But instead, because the through line of I like beer is still there for him, he can't disavow the other thing or he can't he can't he must disavow the other thing because he hasn't changed. I mean, that's what seemed to be the problem. I did kind of feel for him that he was really locked in this commitment to not acknowledging his humanity, you know, that not acknowledging that he was like most of us, a klutz with the opposite sex at that age and put drinking on top of that and a culture of beach week or whatever. The fact that he couldn't acknowledge that is what convicted him in my mind. 
So I think you raise a really important point, and it's a story of our times. The okay. fact that it's really hard to admit being a human being right now in this moment in mm. public life. Robin and I have wrestled with this and written about it, and we've talked about it a lot. You have a series of cross-currents here. You have the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. which at the time that we're writing about and talking about was a year old. It's now two years old. That's obviously been a very powerful movement that's been uh, cathartic for many women and also some men. But there's also a backlash to it where people feel like innocuous experiences and touches mm -hmm. and comments are now being weaponized against other people. Mm -hmm. You've got the Trump administration, which is one of fight, fight, fight. And when it comes to issues of allegations of sexual harassment, deny, deny, deny. And you had a president who wanted to see Justice Kavanaugh fight back and take a much more aggressive stance than he did in the Fox News interview, where he seemed cool, calm, steady, and kind of emphasized his virginity during high school mm -hmm. and into college and his desire for a fair hearing as opposed to strongly worded denials. You've got the partisanship and politicization in the country that seems to be pretty bad right now. Mm -hmm. You've got these cultural differences between the red and blue states and those on both sides of the abortion debate or the gun debate uh, and many other debates. And you've got social media where you can say sort of any horrible thing about anyone and it seems to be acceptable. Mm -hmm. So all of this comes together in the Kavanaugh confirmation. Yep. There seems to be no room for Justice Kavanaugh to say, I'm a human being. There were points when I drank too much. And if I ever hurt somebody along the way, I'm terribly sorry. Mm -hmm. As Sheldon Whitehouse pointed out, it does go to the fact that he can't acknowledge he had a blackout, the fact that he can't acknowledge that some of the code that he used with his friends described more raucous behavior than he pretended it did or probably defined, probably referred to those kind of behaviors made it seem like it just seemed like he was being dishonest with himself and mm -hmm. wasn't acknowledging for fear of, you know, calling himself an, you know, hell-bound demon child who needed to be an exorcism, he wouldn't even acknowledge that he'd ever slipped up. And that was, I think, really maddening to watch. Yeah, I mean, he, cer he cer certainly countered a lot of the kind of questions he was getting with, you yeah. know, I, I worked my ass off, yes. you know, my butt off. I went to great schools, you know, as if one thing answered the other. But I, I think you know, right. we I actually do hell. conclude in our book that this is ultimately a very human narrative um, where there is a flawed person who basically couldn't admit to that um, to so, that imperfection. Well, so, and to be yeah. fair, just put yourself in what may have been his shoes for mm -hmm. a moment. And I say may have because, of course, we're not in his head. We have no idea what he does remember, if anything, and what he's thinking. But mm -hmm. based on our reporting and what we do know, Let's imagine that you are in his shoes and you truly don't remember the Ford scenario. You don't remember it. You maybe remember her vaguely, maybe not. You certainly remember your friends, Mark and PJ, and you certainly remember the heavy drinking in high school, but you don't remember this thing and you have reason to believe it never happened. Mm -hmm. How shocking to learn about this publicly when you are this close to getting your dream job and you're aware of all the cross currents that we've talked about in this conversation yeah. and all the lack of margin for being a human being and admitting any frailty. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's a terrible, terrible conundrum. 
Yeah. I mean, I love this thing that they're admitting any frailty is just disallowed right now. There's just no room to maneuver, you know, when everything seems so binary. That's right. Drive a truck through it. You can drive a truck through it. Exactly. You're either a monster or a total victim. Right. Well, and Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh talked about the binary nature of the position that he was in at the hearing. I mean, he was saying because of you, I guess, meaning the Democrats, uh. um, I may never be able to teach law again. I may never be able to coach basketball again, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And our thought is there's something to that. I mean, he was sort of either on a trajectory to be on the Supreme Court and be able to continue doing all the things he was doing because uh, it would have been accepted that either this didn't happen at all or there was not enough evidence to prove that it happened. Therefore, we can't assume that it did happen and therefore he's confirmed Mm -hmm. or the opposite. You know, there's a belief that these things did happen and and he may have lost all the positions that he did have, again, because of this lack of tolerance for any human frailty or any sort of idea for forgiveness, mm-hmm. reckoning, this kind of interesting notion of a duty of repair, which is something I read about from a, an author named Sarah Shulman during this process. What's duty of repair? She talks about in this book called Conflict is Not Abuse, mm-hmm. uh, which is in itself is sort of a controversial sentiment, but an interesting one. The idea that we have gotten into this sort of cancel culture. Hmm. And when we have conflicts hmm. with other people, there's a tendency now to sort of shun them um, ostracize them, brand them a liar or a freak or whatever, rather than engaging with the conflict that has arisen and try to resolve it. Right. Yes. And this is the whole the whole like everyone's ex-wife or husband was an irredeemable narcissist with, you know, psychosis rising or whatever that just right. d- needs to be damned right. to hell instead of someone you had human conflicts with. That is extremely interesting. Robin Pogrebin is a reporter on The New York Times Culture Desk. She covers the art world and cultural institutions, exploring internal politics at some of these organizations. Kate Kelly is also a reporter for The New York Times. She covers Wall Street. Their co-written book is called The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? You know how to reach me. Come on, Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then make your way over to Slate Plus and become a member. Really, today's the day. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you're missing out on all sorts of perks, including ad-free and bonus episodes, discount to our live shows, and just that sense of moral superiority that you get when you know you're supporting good journalism. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob and Ryan Califf. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>